Hey, NRL 22 fans. Welcome to the latest episode of the NRL 22 podcast. I've got Nick Laffenberg here from Vortex, and he's here to uh, talk to us all about the latest in Rimfire. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, so Nick, why don't you tell uh, our listeners about yourself for those who don't know who you are? Sure. Uh, my name is Nick Laffenberg. I work for Vortex Optics. My current role at Vortex um, is more of just like a precision rifle specialist role. I um, oversee our precision rifle team and uh, attach events, uh, attend events on behalf of Vortex, also shoot a lot of matches, uh, just help out with the product development team, kind of a little bit of everything. Right. So I saw a little bit about you shooting the sniper challenge a few months back. That wasn't a year ago already, was it? Was it a few no. Ago? Okay, no. good. <laughs> I thought I was losing time again. Okay. Yeah. Um, so have you primarily done more center fire shooting or, or have you done quite a bit of rim fire? So the rim fire thing's fairly new for me. Uh, this match here t- that we're at today happens to be the first rim fire match I ever shot, which was exactly one year ago. All right. So, All right. Yeah, mostly center fire for me. Very cool. So what do you, um, what do you like about center fire and rim fire? And do you find them to be different for those who are mostly in the rim fire world right now? There's a lot of differences, but there's also a lot of commonality. I Most of my rimfire experience came from, you know, as a kid squirrel hunting and then, uh, you know, just plinking around. But then also now I use a 22 trainer a lot in training for centerfire. Gotcha. Do you feel like that's really helped your centerfire skills too? Absolutely. It, I, I'm a big proponent of dry fire, but for me, one step up from dry fire is actually live fire. And it gets really expensive to do with the centerfire. You know, if I wanted to shoot uh, my, my typical day at the range where I actually put in some good practice, I'm, I'm pulling the trigger at least 200 times. And if I want to do a rim fire or a center fire, that gets really expensive with rim fire. I mean, it's, I don't want to say pocket change, but it's a lot cheaper. <laughs> Absolutely. So for, for listeners, they didn't get to see me cringe when he said 200 times. And I was thinking about how much that would cost in center fire dollars. Yeah. <laughs> so that makes a lot of sense. Um, so... I think most of our listeners probably know who Vortex is and what what Vortex does. Um, You guys do an amazing job supporting the sport and getting out to, and as a match director especially, we really appreciate all the support that you've given us over the years at our matches. Um, So I feel like people are pretty familiar with your brand, but um, I know you guys also do other types of optics outside of the competition shooting. So what kind of percentage of of your guys' business is geared towards, you know, precision shooting and what's geared more towards hunting or military. That is one of the nice things about Vortex is we do kind of offer a little bit of everything. I couldn't really speak to percentage-wise. We do everything from rifle scopes, red dots, spotting scopes, binoculars, range finders, tripods, and kind of the whole gamut. Uh, a A lot of what we do obviously revolves around shooting, but we kind of many more look at ourselves as a lifestyle brand we have a, a great apparel line um like you know we come to a match like this since warm out we got our sun slayer shirts and a lot of people wearing them um so yeah it, it is not not just as far as everything a little bit for everybody as far as what you're using your optics for but also price points you know if you want to have an entry level optic we have it if you want a you know, absolute tier one optic, we have it. So we, we have something for every customer. Yeah, I've no, uh, we have quite a few 
vortex optics on our loaner rifles, so we'll have a strike eagle. And I, I try to match for our loaner setups, um, like for like in terms of price point. So if someone is spending five hundred dollars on their rifle, they probably wouldn't yeah. want to spend three thousand dollars on an optic, and so to speak. So we definitely in, appreciate the variability in, in price point for for people and getting people familiar with right. what's out there and the quality for the price too has come a really long way in recent history it's pretty cool in a short amount of time right when i when i first really started getting into taking precision rifles seriously i, I mean I, the amount of money that you had to spend to get the feature set that you need for this type of thing it was dramatically different you know, now if you look at our Strike Eagle, the full MSRP I think is $800, so you're picking it up for somewhere around $600 or $700. And for an optic like that 10 years ago, you're looking at two grand. Mm -hmm. just, just to get into that feature set, so that's huge. Right, and then on top of that you have uh, you know, new reticle design that's geared more towards the type of shooting that we've been doing and things like that, and the glass quality is, is getting up there too. Yeah. So that's great. So have you noticed, um, you know, on, from the Vortex standpoint or, or the back end of sales, um, what kind of is the breakdown of centerfire versus rimfire? Is there a difference in terms of what people are buying for their centerfire setup versus rimfire? There used to be a, a bigger difference. I think once you get into the more competition, we're looking for this very similar features and, um, you know, people that really take this competition stuff seriously, even even for rimfire, you know, people aren't coming out here with a two, three hundred dollar scope. I look at my rifle scope and then look down the line. It's like, yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking two, three thousand dollars for a rifle scope, but it's it's all about the level of competition. We're shooting the King of Point Two Eight miles to, or to, you know, for the next couple of days, and it's a very hard match. You know, small targets at you know pretty extended distances, distances when you consider <laughs> we're shooting twenty twos, yeah. and you know to to be competitive in this game, you unfortunately you kind of have to spend some money. But if you love the sport, you're kind of willing to set aside that extra money, put it there in, into the hobby you actually really like doing. Yeah, very true. I, I walked into this um, with almost zero budget. <laughs> so <laughs> when I first started, it was really rough. But uh, ultimately, you know, the amount of, of fun, it's just, you know, people people spend more on other hobbies if they're into cars and things. I mean, yeah. I wouldn't say it's a, a cheap man sport, but uh, <laughs> we, we have a lot of fun. So. Yeah. Um, how about uh, MRAD versus MOA? This is a good one. And it's because I, when I started at Vortex, I actually started off in our, our technical support team, our consumer sales team. So pretty much it's the funnel that when people call in the Vortex, for one, if they have any technical question, it gets funneled to them. If they have a question, maybe, or pretty much anything where they don't know where to go in the directory, it ends up going to consumer sales. And uh, it's because we're kind of the product knowledge experts, but we also have a lot of field time. We shoot a lot of matches. We're, we're kind of those guys. And when I, when I started at Vortex, being in consumer sales, the question of MOA and MRAD comes up a lot. And truthfully, my personal opinion would be it comes down to personal preference. Now, I tend to use MRAD, and I do it for this reason. You know, when we're, especially for a newer shooter coming in, wanting to learn the game, being on the line with a lot of other shooters, especially with more experienced shooters, you want to be able to speak the same language as them. And I think that's probably what most people would say that have been doing this for a while, is being able to speak the same language, talk the same talk, 
it's just easier. A lot of guys I see come to their first match and, and they'll be using MOA and then they'll find themselves in a, a boatload of confusion when they ask somebody, hey, what did you use for a win? And then they give them a correction. Well, this is what I use. And, you know, and, and we look at talking our uh, class that Emil taught, uh, Emil Praslik with, uh, with uh, Capstone or Vitivori Lapua. Um, you know, he talks about the fact that a really experienced shooter will come off the line and somebody will ask him what, what he used for wind, and his answer is in miles per hour, which that's great. A lot of people don't do that. So when somebody gives you a correction in mills and then now you're using MOA, now I have to translate that to a different unit of measurement. It's just a pain. That's, that's probably the biggest reason why I would say somebody coming in this game should probably just pick up an MRAD scope. Personally, I also like mills because it's broken down to tenths. My brain functions in decimals better than it does in fractions. Mine does as well. Yeah. I was I was working with a, a new shooter at a ladies' class last month, and they had MOA, and I was trying to do conversions in my head, and it was it was uh, not fun for me. So yeah, I I agree. Being able to speak the same language, there's pockets of people that use MOA wouldn't hurt to get to a match first and kind of ask people what they're running yeah. um, and then make sure that you're running something similar. But if you're going to be going to bigger matches, all the ones that I've gone to, uh, the majority of the top level shooters are shooting in MRAD. So yeah, now, I agree. If, if you hear that and you think, well, I just, my brain works better in inches. I hear so many people say that. My brain works better in inches. And I get that, you know, taking something that you're familiar with the fact of the matter is neither MOA or milliradian is actually an ang or a linear unit of measurement. They're both angular units. And angular units, although they will equate to a linear unit at a given distance, they still are angular units. So try to get that, that linear unit thought out of your head. Stop thinking in inches. You know, when, when you're looking at, at uh, targets downrange, you have in your scope a reticle with subtensions on it that is works the same as a ruler being able to measure targets measure your point of impact versus your point of aim actually using a correct value rather than measuring something now converting it to another number so that you can get your correction it just doesn't work as good just just use the data in your scope and it doesn't really matter what units you're using at that point yeah i think I was ahead of the curve on that because if I had it drilled into my head that it was linear, I think it would have really been difficult to overcome. But for whatever reason, I was picturing the bullet arc. And so I was only thinking in elevation when I first started because that's all I, I needed to worry about that was different than, you know, things I'd, I'd done for hunting and things like that when I was a kid. So for me, it was an easy conversion, but I could see where that would be a struggle for people. Um, I agree, though. Just try and take that out of your mind. It's it's not, um, it's not a linear measurement. You have to know what your angle is to the target for that particular distance. Right. So, And while we're on that topic and measuring, um, when you do a wind call and you're talking to your squad mates about that and you're all friends, so you're going to share what your wind call was, where do you measure from? Because this is a debate that's come up recently. So if you miss the target, yeah. what are you telling them your wind call is? If I miss the target, what am I telling my wind colors? So, yeah, if you missed it by, like, half a mil. Okay. So here's, here's how I do it. And, and I, I, maybe, it's, maybe it's just my brain, the way it works is, and I'm, I'm a very literal person, so when I give somebody a direction, 
I'm going to give them a very literal direction. So I might say, well, I missed, but I was holding five tenths to center. There you, know? you go. That's the key. Yeah, yeah because <laughs> it just depends on what you, I, mean, I understand that there's some actual benefit into not holding center on a, on a target because, you know, the whole aim small, miss ball, it actually, it, that, that, it's a true thing. If you have a if you have a concentrating on a smaller point of aim, the chances are that your dispersion or at least the, the level of accuracy for that shot is going to be at a higher level of precision. So, yeah, I, 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 there is there is some benefit to actually having something on the target to aim at. Uh, I typically am aiming at the center of the target, but I will always give somebody a correction to center, and I will say to center when I do. So that's where. You know, some people, they call their wind correction to the edge, which is why I always clarify now because I got into it at a match with someone yeah. who was giving me a to edge call and didn't stay, and I always measure to center too. So, of course, I'm, I'm going to be in that camp. But yeah. to me, if, if you have a two-inch target at a certain distance and then you have another a three-inch target at a different distance, I want to know what the wind call is for both, you know, targets. And, I, and to calculate that, I have to know to center because they're different sizes, right? right. So that's how my brain works, but... Thank you for settling that for yeah. me. So I will go back and say I was right. <laughs> Nick said so. <laughs> you know, and, and when we talk about talking with your squad mates, that's another thing, you know, obviously with the sport's great because we all want to see each other succeed, which is a whole other topic altogether. But, you know, if, if I'm shooting with a group of people and I know, let's say my, my buddy Mike that I work with, um, I can, if he asked me what I shot, what I held, I can give him a win, or a win correction in, in miles per hour and we can, we can translate that. But I also know that if maybe if I'm working with a newer shooter that might not know their wind number for their rifle, I'll tell them what I held, and then we'll probably talk, you know, okay, so what is your velocity? Well, you, you probably have a little bit shorter time of flight than me, so you take a little bit off that wind call. Um, so it, it just depends on who you're talking to, you know your audience when you're having that communication. Right, and we were, we were talk, talking in the wind class earlier and talking about converting to miles per hour completely makes sense, um, especially in center fire because the velocities are so different based on what you're shooting for caliber. So I was thinking in my head, that's something we're really spoiled with in rim fire where we can get pretty close without yeah. converting anything because we're all shooting very similar velocities and you know we're all subsonic. So that's something where, where we get a little spoiled, but when you get into more center fire, you know, yeah. it really makes a difference what, what you're shooting and what your rifle does with your ammo and your load, so. Yeah. Good stuff. So tell us a little bit about this sniper challenge because <laughs> I hadn't seen anything about it previously and then I was following it kind of on social media, which is um, how I saw all those updates. So tell us a little bit about this match for those who don't know, know what it is. And then I'm really interested in what was your preparation going into this match? Because it sounds like something that is so interesting to me yet outside my comfort zone. Right. So sniper challenge is an interesting thing and, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a genre of shooting that I think some people really dislike the fact that they're referred to as sniper competitions. But the reason why it is, is because a lot of them are actually with courses of fire designed to mimic training iterations or actual engagements from history, you know, and sniper engagements. So that's why they're called sniper competitions. The other reason why is that they're, well, for me, it actually probably makes more sense to explain why I why I like them uh, in that particular genre of shooting is I'm I'm a hunter. My background is hunting. I grew up hunting. Um, you know, I'm not lugging my 25 pound rifle through the woods when I hunt. Um, 
coming out to a uh, you know BRS or NRL centerfire type of match, I'm not I'm not carrying a lightweight rifle. I'm carrying a rifle that's advantageous to the function of that sport, and that sport doesn't require me to lug stuff around for extended distances. Uh, I don't have to do a lot of offhand shooting, so throwing some weight on my gun, properly balancing it so that I can sit on a barricade and it just sits there for me. Also, when I pull the trigger, it doesn't move much. You know, for that sport, it's, it's very advantageous. Uh, it doesn't do me any good to practice my skills as a hunter in that sport. Now, you know, pulling the trigger, obviously, repetition, that's always beneficial to your function as a shooter, but not necessarily to everything else. With most sniper challenge type matches, there's a rucking element involved where you're throwing all your gear on your back and you're going from stage to stage, which over the course of a weekend, might, you might traverse 30 miles on foot, uh, sometimes more, up to 40. Uh, then also you'll have a pistol element, so being able to be competent in multiple disciplines of shooting is important. Also, when you're, when you're doing these rucks, if you're carrying all your ammo, your food, your rifle, all your gear, you probably don't want to carry a 25-pound rifle as well when most people are shooting to have a pack that is sub-50 pounds with their gun. That's hard. And so if, if your rifle weighs half that, then you're not being able to take all your food. You're not being able to take a uh, change of clothes. Not being able to take extra socks, you know, and get trench foot. Mm. So you got to be careful. And um, so being able to do the, the sniper comps has just been a little bit more... I want to say enjoyable as far as having more elements to it. But it's the same type of thing with the NRL Hunter. I really like that, that genre of shooting because it is a little bit more related to my roots going back to hunting too. Gotcha. And it helps you train for hunts and things like that. So yep. it's mutually beneficial. That makes sense. So for the sniper challenge, it's two. is it two days or three? Three. Three days. Okay. And you're camping out as well? So, so in the Vortex Team Sniper Challenge, there's three... Uh, three different classes that you can shoot in three different sections. Um, you have mechanized, which you're actually transported from stage to stage. So those are the guys that actually can take their, their full heavyweight gun out. Right? Um, then there's trooper, where you ruck from stage to stage, but at the end of the day you get to go back to your hotel, get a nice shower, get some hot food in you. And then there's uh, LRRP, or Long Range Recon Patrol. And that one, you you ruck, you have your campsite, everything for your gear for that weekend is on your back throughout the match, and uh, you're camping out in the elements, you don't get to go back, get a shower and food, you kind of whatever you have on you is what you got to work with. So what did you shoot this year? Uh, so actually, I was planning on shooting all three divisions, oh, wow. and uh, my uh, partner for the match where we first qualified happened to be, we, we shot mechanized, and we qualified mechanized, so now we get to shoot the finale. So we're actually using the next match we shoot mechanized as well so for practice for the finale because <laughs> there there's actually some good money on the line right. and we like some practice as a team. Okay, very cool. Yeah, I think that would be a good foot in the door yeah. situation for someone like me. I, I've not no problem roughing it, but for a three day situation, I mean, I can pretty much make it one or two before yeah. I need a shower. So <laughs> it, it was. It's funny because I actually spent a long time training to do LRRP which still is extremely appealing. It looks like a ton of fun. I want to do it. Um, I'll probably do it next year because I, I want to actually get some more practice in for the finale. But, um, you know, I, I got all trained up for, for doing LRP and, and I ended up shooting mechanized for the first one. We just, just happened to work out that way, which is fine. We're still shooting. It's still enjoyable. Yeah, for sure. Well, and it sounds like it's not like a, it's, 
it's not like your traditional match anyways. It's not like you get none of the experience. It's just not as much of the experience. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So tell us a little bit more about um, some of your favorite matches that you've shot and why. Uh, I would say from uh, especially uh, one of my more memorable ones was probably the JC Steel Challenge and Washington Jake Beverish match, which was an NRL center fire match. Um, that was the first time I ever shot up a helicopter. That was fun. So that was that definitely goes down in my, my brain as one of the most memorable. Um, the most recent uh, Vortex Team Sniper Challenge match was extremely memorable for me. Um, my uh, partner for the match happens to be the best man of my wedding. Um, so, you know, getting to hang out with a good friend of mine and, and uh, qualifying for the finale at that one, that was fun. Those are, and actually this match here, the King of Point 28 Miles, I would say from a challenging standpoint, it, it tests you. So, <laughs> yeah, this was very memorable as well. Yes, for sure. I, uh, I was glad to see there's no snake charmers this year because that is the bane of my existence. Oh, there's not? I oh, didn't. No. I mean, unless I, I got to reread I this. haven't read it. I have to reread it. But the, I was actually hoping for charmer, one. Oh, no, I hate it. I, I hate it. I uh, I was really nervous in Iowa last year. I shot a match, an X match, an Earl 22 X match. Yeah. And they had a snake charmer. And I was doing really well all day. And it was one of the last stages I, I, I had to shoot. And I was like, just don't zero it, Ruth. Just don't. Like, it's a mental thing. 100% mental. It has nothing to do with, like, the prop is so difficult. Yada, yada. I just, for some reason... It's like panic mode for me. <laughs> you know, they say if you tell yourself not to zero stage, all your brain is hearing is zero stage. Zero yes, stage, that's zero true. Stage. That's zero. That, that's true. Yeah. I was, uh, next time I'll have to flip that. So I'll be like, get at least one impact. Get at least <laughs> one. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be good. Um, yeah, so this is it's definitely a fun match. I think the atmosphere here, I mean, we're all here for charity. It's a charity event. Yep. So everyone's kind of heart is in the right place here. Um, and then it's, you know, big, lots of people, lots of good competition. Yeah. There's lots of really experienced shooters from multiple disciplines here, so right. a lot of fun. Yeah, I think from the from the level of challenge that you have here between having extremely good competitors, uh, extended distances, and little targets, it, it's it's a really fun match for that reason. And I'm I I've never messed with my ballistic calculator so much walking <laughs> up to a match than I have for this one. To get trying to get everything tuned in so that my data is actually reading out of the ballistic calculator <laughs> so it's repeatable. Oh my god. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So I I approach this one a little different. So there's two parts to it. There's like a traditional, more like an NRL 22x match on the first day, and then the second day. So tomorrow we'll have the the, the traditional match, and then Sunday, the second day of the match is uh, the ELR challenge. So it's to yeah. try to break the world record. Yeah. And so I know a lot of people that come out here and they're they spend so much time getting dope for distance, and I probably should, um, but but I don't, just because I think I've not, I've not had a gun that um, okay. passed 350 yards is super reliable. So I'm kind of like, well, it's a it's a crapshoot for me. So I might as well just sling bullets out there and see what happens. All right. Yeah. I I end up I, I I sat at the bench and and just working back and forth, you know, changing my. Uh, I changed between a G1, a G7, a custom curve, uh, adding drop skill factors, removing drop skill factors, <laughs> increasing, decreasing my velocity just to get my data to line up. And I finally got something that lines up, but you know what? I will probably come out here tomorrow 
and the temperature will be you know, 10 degrees different and everything will go to hell. So. Right, yeah. Well, and I think the weather is supposed to do uh, like 60 degrees in the morning and then like 80, 85 by the afternoon. So even that temperature swing makes a big difference, oh, yeah. which is why I'm, I'm really glad I took that Kestrel class this morning because I feel better. And I updated my firmware, which overwrote my DSF. So I'm really glad that Francis taught us how to reset your DSF. So if you, if you guys need to Google how to do that, Francis has a really good method, and I'm about to test it, so I'll let you all know how it goes. Uh, that's awesome. So tell us a little bit more about what Vortex has going on right now. What's the latest, what's the, the new stuff we should be looking out for? Well, especially for the uh, 22 competition stuff, our, our Gen 3 Razor, it's not brand new by any means, but the Gen 3 636 is, I don't want to say it was de designed around this type of competition, but when when designing that scope, our product development team took NRL 22 into deep consideration because we know how serious people are about this game and building a scope that'll do everything that they possibly want it to do for it, 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 it checks all the boxes. You know, we have um, a parallax that goes down to 10 yards. We have a, a 6 to 36 magnification range, which six power you can shoot nearly point blank range with. I can still actually see my reticle even with the first focal plane, which is kind of crazy because usually the first focal plane it just about disappears. But on six power you can still use it. It's not ideal, but you can still use it. Um, and then all the way up to 36 power you retain all your clarity. And if I wanted to see the tiniest KYL rack at extended distance, I can more than easily do it with this uh, 36 power. I rarely use 36 power during a match. Usually kind of that, at least for for this match, I'll probably be hanging out in that 12 to 15 power range. But, uh, um, you know, the, the, the 10 yard parallax, the extended range, the improved reticle, that's a big one. We went from the EBR7C as in Charlie to the EBR7D as in Delta. And we, we took a lot of user feedback. When we had the EBR7C, we added the two-tenth mill marks, which was a big thing that people were asking for. That and was what I was very much most excited about, because yeah. I think I told every person in the world that would listen, not just <laughs> people who work in optics, but I was like, I need the two-tenth hold. Yeah, the two-tenth, especially two-tenth wind holds was, was a huge thing. And so with the EBR7C, we, we added those. We made some corrections, made some changes to the design of the reticle. Um, we immediately got feedback. For, like That's the first thing that will happen. Anytime you come with a new product, people are going to say, I like it, but right. they're going to they're <laughs> give you some things that they want to change. And there was a couple of points that we heard uh, a little bit more commonly, and, and we definitely took those into consideration. One of the things was adding two-tenths on the vertical stadia as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Also, the um, the the length on the two tenth marks and the the half and the one mil marks on the horizontal stadia were extended on the EBR seven C. And we did that actually so that on lower magnifications you could still visually see those and utilize them. Um, but with the six to thirty six, we're able to still utilize those marks on lower magnification. They're still very visible, and we were able to shrink those down to make them less disruptive. So the whole reticle itself has more information on it but somehow looks less quote-unquote cluttered yes i know i hear that all the time you know people don't like busy yeah. reticles and things like that so it's a it's a fine line 
uh, I personally love more reference points because I hold over yeah. all the time. I, I just find it to be a lot more efficient. And if you can be precise enough in this sport, it's better to be more efficient with your time. Oh, yeah. So for me, I, the reticle is, is where I live and breathe. So when we saw the Gen 3 Razor, which I have had a chance to look through and I'm very excited about. Uh, I I was very over the moon about the, the new reticle design. I'm, I'm really excited about it. So good. it's good stuff. Um, so what else do you guys have going on? Anything coming up or fun training events maybe? I know you guys have that. I'm, I'm dying to get out to see that training center in Wisconsin. Yeah, Vortex Edge. Uh, we're very fortunate to have that. Originally when we, when we moved to our new headquarters, um, our founder, Dan Hamilton, had this he, he, he's one of those guys that wants to always think into the future. And when we had talked about having a range for company use, it was pretty much going to be an underground 100-yard tunnel. Just a, a small tunnel where we could you know, do recoil testing, we could do some very basic stuff. And that turned into a massive facility where we have a 100-yard range with five bays, we have a 50 yard range with 14 bays, a 25 yard range with I think 10 bays, uh, a point blank range for like recoil testing and stuff like that. Then we have a full modular shoot house, we have a 200 and, is it 275 degree, or 270 degree uh, Vertra, so that's like a, a quote-unquote virtual reality where you're standing and you have screens surrounding you and you have somebody actually at the computer where they can run scenarios on the screen. You have a, have an actual Glock or a, um, you know, an AR-15 with a laser inside of it with a CO2-powered recoil um, simulator and they'll run simulations and then the person sitting at the computer can actually key in how that person reacts to what you're saying to them. Um, so from a, from a training aspect, we got a little bit of everything, and uh, we're very fortunate to have it. Uh, I, f I forget how lucky I am to be able to come in before I, before I hit the office and go down and do some load development. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. That would be nice, just oh, you know, right wonderful. in the backyard practically. Yeah, that's pretty yep. cool. Yeah, I took a look at some of the, the shoot house you know, trainings that are available in you know, being in Minnesota, I'm not that far away, so someday I will make it out there. But it just sounds, it's its such a, a neat thing to be able to offer practical skills when it comes to home defense. Because we all, most of us, a lot of us have um, home defense weapons and things like that. And that's about as far as our planning has gone right, in terms yeah. of actual home defense. So to have the, the practical scenarios and how you would defend yourself or um, others is pretty cool, especially with that real-time feedback on... Nope, you just shot your neighbor through the window or, you know, yeah. <laughs> something like that versus your your success rate in those different situations. And then, you know, keeping a clear mind through those scenarios is also huge. So to have actual training right. so that you can develop that is, is big. We have the, the, the actual shoot house is huge too, just because we will have law enforcement uh, departments come in and, and do CQB stuff yeah. in there. And to be able to, you know, I'll, I'll go down and help out. Now, I don't, I don't have any CQB background or anything, but uh, I, can put on, uh, I can put on some protective gear and be a bullet sponge. And that's fun. <laughs> and, and, uh, <laughs> That'll get your heart racing. Oh, it's a, oh. Lot, it's a lot of fun. And, um, you know, and, and we do sim munitions down there. So 
they give you real feedback. It doesn't feel good. Yeah. And uh, you, always, you always kind of feel bad when you have a <laughs> you get the fire back and you hit somebody on bare skin. It, it doesn't feel good. Ooh, ouch. <laughs> yeah, but no, that's it's, good feedback though. For, oh, they you know. they remember that. Don't don't turn your back to that door again. There you go. You know, yep. and uh, you know, so having that available for you know law enforcement, and then also have all the civilian classes. It is a great facility, and we're very, again, very fortunate to have it. Very cool. So, does Vortex have anything um, in terms of, like, you guys have a shooting team in the precision rifle world. I know that you have sponsored shooters, so is there an official team, and what is that team motto, or tell us more about it. <laughs> we, our, our team, I would say, is kind of more casual. Um, we have a really good group of brand ambassadors that represent Vortex. Um, you know, we, I, I have a lot, of, a lot of things I look at with people and really what it comes down to for me is, one of the biggest things at least, is when I go to a big match, at the end of the day, who's sitting on the tailgate of a truck talking with new shooters, helping them learn what to do? Who's the person who has all the equipment they need and then they, they win something? and they give it to an RO or giving it to a new shooter. You know, I, I'm not saying that you walk the prize table, you should always give away what you earned. Definitely not saying that at all. But I, you know, I, I'll, I'll bring him up because he's, he's one of my best friends too. Uh, Isaiah Curtis, he's on the Vortex team. And Isaiah, I have not seen him, I've seen him win many matches. And at every one of them, he'll walk up there, you know, he'll accept his trophy. And then he'll look through the crowd and find somebody. Like, I just remember at the Vortex Rampage, I think in 2018 or 19, I remember him winning it, walking up there, accepting his trophy, and it was his turn to walk the prize table. There's a rifle on the table. Most guys would be tickled to death to walk over and pick up a rifle. Well, Isaiah is a gunsmith. He has plenty of custom rifles that he's built himself. There was a kid there that was working his butt off all weekend, ROing, being a gopher running back and forth with the match director one of Jim C's matches Isaiah pointed at the kid and said come up here bud the kid walked up he said go grab that rifle and so the kid you know, went and grabbed the rifle I believe it was chambered in 308 so Isaiah being the guy he is actually also rechambered the rifle Aww. for free for the kid so it was a lower recoiling gun. oh that's awesome that's yeah. so cool I so, love stories like that and that's really what makes this sport feel like family to me and one of the reasons why I'm so heavily involved. Um, so I basically have my day job, and then my other job is to be involved in all of these matches and podcasts and things like that. But it, it, it's one of the reasons why I spend as much time in this area as I do is because people like Isaiah. And he's, he's such a good, low-key, humble person. Sorry, now he's probably blushing. If he, actually, if, if he ever listened to this, he'd be blushing. But... Um, he's just one of the one of the best people, um, and I've seen him do exactly like you said, give away prizes he's won at matches before, and yep. um, it's pretty cool. It sets a really good example for for some of the rest of us too. It, it is, and it is, it is an example that I I like seeing because I think that knowing that somebody like him does that, and knowing that somebody else who might be let's say getting into shooting they come up and they become a, a great shooter like him as well and start winning matches because they saw him do that that trickles down 100 percent. i know specifically at the nrl 22 championship a couple years ago 
Isaiah won a side stage. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Justin Carbone, he won another side stage, and he saw Isaiah give away his prize, and he's like, well, I don't need that prize either. He yeah. just wanted to win, right? Yeah. He wanted to win the stage. So he did the same thing. So that example, it trickles down yeah. um, for sure. That's a good thing to see. Yeah. I, I like seeing that. Uh, always warms my heart when I see top-end shooters, you know, helping out the little guy, yeah. you know, as they say. 100%. And that's what this sport is all about for me, the NRL 22, specifically the 22 area. It's all about getting new people involved and right. people who normally wouldn't be involved, So, which is great. As, uh, as I told Travis when, 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 when we were talking about the NRL 22X before it actually came into existence, this is a gateway drug. Yeah. Who doesn't have a 22? If you have a 22, come to a match. I do not care if you don't have a $5,000 22. If you have a 22, come to a match. Because if you don't have the equipment, somebody will give it to you. Yeah. So, so there's always people are going to help. At the least, at the very worst, you're going to come to a match and you say, wow, I should really get something like that to do this. You know, um, I, I talk to a lot of hunters, and that's another thing with the NRL Hunter Series. That's going to be great for, for the hunting crowd and actually kind of building up that, that, that level of learning, crossing over from the competition side to the hunting side is that the amount of hunters that I know that see me grab a bag and throw it on a tree stump and set my rifle on it and shoot a target at you know, extended distances. I remember I had a, uh, a friend of mine come out to the range with me and we were sighting in his rifle. I just happened to bring my rifle, my competition rifle with me and uh, just so he could shoot it too because he wanted to see some of my guns. And I, I threw um, a wee bad Whiskey Charlie bag on top of a stump. And I had an Ipsic at a thousand yards. And I told him what to dial. I showed him how to hold the rifle on the bag. And he got a first round impact at a thousand on a bag. And he was just baffled that he could do that. But I guarantee that guy went out and bought a bag that he takes hunting with him now. <laughs> that is so true. We, This has changed kind of my approach. So I, I don't have a ton of hunting background. The way that I hunted as a kid, some duck and, and stuff like that too. So it's not like I, I never roughed it. But... My preference for deer hunting involves sitting in a stand with a heater and a warm <laughs> cup of coffee and a roof over my head, preferably walls on all four sides so you get the picture. When I'm trying to get ready to take a shot, I put the gun on the edge of the tree stand okay. on the wall. And you have to be really quiet about it because you don't want to startle a deer. If I had a bag back then, I would have been making shots like nobody's business. Oh, yeah. it's, uh, it's a game changer, so I, I took one over to my dad's house. He wanted me to give him some lessons, and he's a big hunter. He's done all kinds of hunting out west, mountains, you know, elk. He went up to Kodiak Island and shot a bear. So um, he's he's done all kinds of different styles of, of hunting, shooting. And I I brought my my uh, support bag over, and I threw it on the back of a chair. And I was like, okay, so now picture this. And it was just <laughs> mind-blowing. So that's, that's super fun to, to be able to take some of those experiences and, and share them with people. Yeah, it's little things like that and that it's the little things like that that cross over from different disciplines of shooting that really kind of unify the shooting in general. Absolutely. I feel like shooting this style makes me cringe thinking about some of the shots that I took before and knowing <laughs> what I know about first focal plane versus second focal plane and wind and all yeah. of those things I'm like why was I taking those shots those poor animals yeah uh, a little more precise <laughs> these days <laughs> so uh, good that's awesome well um, 
If you're willing, Nick, I'd like to answer some questions that we have from listeners. Sure. So are you up for that? Yeah, yeah. Perfect. Uh, so what we're going to do here in this format is just answer some questions that people have emailed in. If you guys listening have questions, email podcast at nrl22.org, and we will read them on one of the next podcasts. So we have a couple today, um, specifically from Courtney Anderson. Uh, she wants to know, what are your one, two, three fundamentals to build a position? So basically, I think what she's asking here is, what are the, the standard processes you use in priority order when you're building a position? Uh, so like off of a barricade? Yeah, I'm assuming yeah. off of a barricade, but it could technically probably apply to other situations too, for sure. Uh, so the first thing, when i building a position, the first thing, I, it sounds too generalized probably, but is position. I want to make sure that I am squared to my target. Um, my shoulders essentially should be perpendicular to the line of my rifle. That way when the gun recoils, the recoil impulse should be straight back and straight forward. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so that would be, I guess, step number one. Um, uh, step number two is making sure I have a really good sight picture. My target should be in full view. I'm, I'm one of those people who's a big proponent of using lower magnification, especially for newer shooters, increasing your field of view. Uh, when you're working with a rifle that has some recoil, you want to be able to see where your round goes. Having super high magnification and less experience means that you're probably not going to see where that round goes. So, you know, building that strong position straight up to your gun, perpendicular to your target, or perpendicular to your rifle, sorry. That allows you to control your recoil process better, but so you can't always get that perfect position. So having a larger field of view so you can actually see your splash or your impact is going to benefit you. And then uh, the, the next thing is, is where you got your support hand. So some people put it over the scope. Some people run it forward. I personally, it, it's going to be a little bit dependent on situation. I'm probably not the consistent, I always do this type of guy. If, if I can, I'm gonna pinch the side of my stock and pinch the bag, kind of mold them together. I, I want the whole system to be one. That way, when I take a little bit of pressure off my shoulder, you know, go from that 80% that push into the gun down to 50% and to reduce my wobble, then I still have something stabilizing that platform properly. Yeah, that makes sense. I do that too. Typically, um, I mean, it depends on what type of prop I'm shooting off of, honestly, what I do with my left hand, but a lot of times I do that exact thing that you're saying where I, I pinch the the fore end of the stock and the front of my bag or the side of my bag or something like that. So It definitely feels like um, it helps stabilize my body too at the same time. Yeah. So yeah. I do a little bit of counterbalance with that. I think for me... My first uh, first thing when I'm building the position, obviously, is where's the target, oh, right? Yeah. And then so then I want to put my bag down in a in a way that I know is not going to tumble one direction or the other off of the barricade, which has not ever happened to me, of course. Um, <laughs> ask me how I know. Uh, and then you know when I get the rifle set up in conjunction to the target, right first. And then after that, I'll build my position around the rifle because I'm trying for that, you know, ever elusive natural point of aim when you're first starting yeah. this. What is natural point of aim? Um, 
So one of the things that you want to make sure is that you're not contorting your body in a way that it's going to influence the rifle off of the target. So for me, if I remember to do things in that order, it definitely helps. But once I get on there uh, to make sure that my um, I'm not influencing the rifle by my body position, right? So I'm going to come in with my shoulder first and my hand, uh, my right hand, and then I will, you know, kind of modify where I put my left hand based on what type of barricade and how, how balanced am I and am I kneeling or, or standing or, or things like that. So I think those are pretty much the, the main fundamentals for me. Yeah, yeah, those have, and actually just in general, having a process that you do every time is very important. You know, consistency is key. So rehearse that every time you have your range trip, every time you do a practice session try to try to repeat that process 100 percent. this is something people are probably sick of hearing me say because i'm sure it's the third or fourth time i brought it up but one of the things that i i love to tell people who are getting into training is to practice on a ladder because you get so much height variation your body is going to be in in most of the different positions that you'll be in shooting off of almost any barricade you'll come across based on the the height difference difference so for me shooting off of the second rung is the most awkward and I know that so about two feet off the ground if I'm shooting off a prop it's going to be the most awkward but I know now from my practice the best way to approach that particular barricade and what body position I need to be in to overcome the awkwardness right uh, for that for that height so very good and then Courtney also wants to know what are the top two fundamentals a new shooter should work on so outside of building positions on barricades, what are the, the main fundamentals, um, top two, that you think new shooters should work on? I'm thinking of my number one, which is the last fundamental of marksmanship, and that's your trigger squeeze. And in particular, when, I, when I'm doing, when I'm working with somebody who's a little bit newer to shooting and, and teaching them through the fundamentals of marksmanship, the last one's trigger. Well, I break that down to a, a skipping over number four which is trigger, and then jump into number five, which doesn't typically exist, but I say follow-through should be its own fundamental. Too many times do I see people pull the trigger and then pull their finger off the trigger like they're trying to stop a machine gun from firing. You don't need to. In fact, I would say it's much more beneficial that when that gun goes off, to continue that application of pressure through the recoil process, then you can remove your finger. You know, those changes in your hand position by the, it's not really flinching, but it is the, it's a direct movement of muscles in your hand as soon as the gun breaks, or as soon as the trigger breaks, it's not good. Um, also, you know, I'm not picking on hunters by any means because I'm a hunter myself, but you see a lot of guys that are shooting the lighter rifles that are higher recoiling. They pull their trigger and they immediately pop their head up off the stock to see where the, you know, to see, did I hit the deer? Well, you have a magnified optic in front of you. You should be able to see with that. Uh, so keeping your head down, following through with your trigger squeeze, I think is such an important one that I harp on people the most. Um, you know, I, position is obviously very important when we talked about that. Um, one that I think that is probably glazed over is breathing. Understanding breathing patterns is, is, is a really interesting thing, which... You know, me doing more like, exercise and, and training, like I'm also trying to try and learn how to like slow your heart rate, all that stuff. You know. But um, being able to 
take your deep breath in and out and identify where your respiratory pause is and continuing your trigger squeeze in your pause, making that consistent. You don't have to do that Call of Duty, that sniper exhale, <laughs> and then shoot. But, you know, taking a deep breath in and then slow release. And then once you get to the bottom of that, you'll find that you, your body's relaxed. And when your body's relaxed, your trigger pull can be more consistent. So just repeating that process. And, and it also is almost um, a psychological hack. When you do that in and out and then hit your pause and continue your trigger squeeze, your brain goes into, I have to repeat what I just did pattern. So if you did that in the last squeeze of the trigger, doing it on your next one, your whole process is probably gonna be a little bit more the same across the board, which again, consistency comes down to precision. This is huge, huge in the sport, consistency. I don't know where you were when I first got started, but <laughs> that was the best explanation of follow through I think I've heard. And at first about two years, it didn't click in my head. <laughs> that, that I was doing it wrong. So, you know, Justin would yell at me and I'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm following through. Uh, I don't yeah. know. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, so that that's huge. I think a big piece of it. So I would agree with you. Number one, follow through. So when you're done pulling the trigger and your shot breaks, stop everything you're doing. Just pause. Don't move. And then to your point about looking through the optic to see what happens downrange, think about and make yourself register what just happened. If you didn't see your bullet, make yourself register. I didn't see the bullet. Don't know what happened that time. And have that entire thought go through before you lift the bolt to yep. move to the next shot. Because if you don't do that, at least what happens for me, I'll be on to the next thing thinking about my next shot, and I never finished the first shot I was on. Right. And when I do that, for some reason, I influence the rifle. I don't know if I'm already moving or what, but I, I tend to miss high and left every time. So when I miss high left, I go, did I follow through? Nope. All right, then. But once I started registering that this is what I was supposed to do and I started executing on it properly, I was hitting stuff I didn't think I could hit. Yeah. Um, and it was pretty cool. So. so when I'm doing a class, I usually, especially newer shooters, I spend a lot of time on marksmanship fundamentals. I know some people hate that term, fundamentals. Um, you know, shot process. You know. I will spend a lot of time on that. And one of the things that I do is I will tell somebody, if I watch somebody pull their finger off the trigger quick, I'll say, okay, I want you to rack the bolt again. And on this shot, I want you to tell me where your bullet goes before I see your finger come off the trigger. Do not take your finger off the trigger until I tell you to. And 90% of the time, I'll see them yank the finger off the trigger and try to put it back in place real quick <laughs> so I didn't see it. And I'll say, did you see what you did? Yeah. Because it is it's a subconscious thing that you have to break yourself of that habit. Because if, if you don't, it, it will throw shots. And uh, a, a kind of a, a good way to break yourself of that, and it's something that I do with people a lot, is while they're shooting, I will say, audibly, say it out loud, one 1,000, and then take your finger off the trigger. Make that part of your shot process. And then you can do it quietly to yourself, and then all of a sudden you don't actually have to say it. Just naturally, you keep your finger on the trigger. But you'll see people do it, just instinctively yank the finger off the trigger and and uh, it, it is a hard one to break. Yeah. yeah, even just releasing the pressure on your finger is enough. So if I left my hand on the gun even, but I pulled my, my finger off, that, that was yeah. more what my MO was. But that whole, you know, dry fire and practice and just drill this into your head, do a thousand trigger pulls where you're not doing it. Yep. Um, and if you do it wrong, break your whole position and start over and get back into it. 
and then do another dry fire and make sure you do it right. Um, that's been the best method for me, and I still fight that. You know, uh, one of the things that I like to do is I'll load dummy rounds for myself. So I'll take my center fire and I'll, I'll load my regular load and then I'll take three of them and I'll put a bullet in there and then I'll use like hot glue to fill the primer pocket <laughs> and uh, I'll color the bullet. So obviously I know this is my dummy, but when yeah. I'm loading my magazine, I'll do it without looking. Yep. So that when I put my rounds in my magazine, I don't know what order the dummies are in there. I'll insert the mag, get behind the rifle and I'll start engaging a target. And if I'm not pulling the trigger properly, I'll know it real quick when that round doesn't go off. What did I do? Did did I see my my reticle move when I pulled the trigger when it shouldn't have? Did my finger come off trigger? There's a lot of things, especially when you start timing yourself and doing it. It's a really rewarding feeling when you're on the clock and you hit a dummy round and you said, I pulled that trigger perfect. And then you can keep on going. Because once you actually identify that perfect trigger pull, it'll just compound and repeat. And the, the best way to reinforce your dry fire lesson is by live firing and hitting targets. Absolutely. <laughs> for sure. Um, so every time you miss, just think to yourself, that was good because it punished me for doing it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. Uh, that's good. Okay, so we have a different question from Bob Bright. He's looking into getting into NRL 22 with his son. Um, so he wants to know what a good starter setup for base class is that's budget friendly. So maybe I will start out with some of the, the rifles. And then I'm going to let you take over the optic portion since, you know, you're a resident expert in the in the DST Precision trailer that we're uh, <laughs> recording this in, which shout out to Troy Tyson of DST Precision for providing the NRL 22 yeah. podcast, uh, what do we call it, the studio for, for the day. So. It's air conditioned, which was making me happy. Yes, it's air conditioned. It's pretty amazing. It's comfy, too. Leather couches. It's great. Yep. Thanks, Troy. Um, so for budget-friendly rifles, a couple of my favorites... Um, you can't really go wrong with the CZ 457. I don't own one right now. We don't have that in our loaner suite, but I've heard really good things about them, and you can upgrade them um, with aftermarket accessories, you know, rebarrel it if you wanted to step out of, like, the base class. So if you're trying to stay in the base class, um, you know, you, you can't make a lot of modifications, but the CZ gives you the option to step into open class down the road. Um, the Tika T1X is another one that I love. They just, they're tack drivers. Um, so I know there's a couple of mechanical things that can go wrong with them, um, like any any rifle, really. Uh, but for the price point, they, they really shoot well. We have a loaner, and that's one of my favorite ones. It's like a, you can pick one up for about 500 bucks. Yeah. Um, and similar with the CZ. And then there's um, Savage has a, um, of course, I'm, I'm going to butcher this one because I've got the Mark II segment. No, it is the Mark II. The Mark II is their... Um, lower price point. I gotta admit, I, I actually have not shot the Savage uh, rimfires yet. Yeah, so they've got they've got two offerings, um, and the the Mark II is I think the less expensive of the two. But I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to double check that, you guys. Uh, so don't quote me on that. And then uh, obviously, you know, the the Ruger is an option as well. Um, I tend to steer people towards uh, the Tika and the CZ. That's what we see a, a lot more of. Uh, so repeatability and and you know just the number of them that are out there helps to determine you know what what common issues you might run into and therefore how to fix those common issues so that's that's something that i kind of steer people towards yeah i i agree with you on the rifles in particular i'm a huge fan of the cz 457 i think it's pretty hard to beat the level of precision those get out of the box i actually purchased 
two CZ 457 Pro varmint with the black, uh, more tactical style of stock. Uh, bought two of them so that me and my fiance can have one. There you go. So we can go to the range together, shoot together. We have the same rifle, you know. Um, as far as from the optics side, remind me, what is the, uh, what is, is there, is it combined value or is it a given value for it's the It's combined value with the rifle and the optic. Okay. I don't remember, so I might be wrong on this. The Venom 5 to 25 by 56 might fit in the base class. I cannot remember. If it doesn't, then I would go down to the Diamondback Tactical First Focal Plane. That one I know for a fact fits in the base class. I know a lot of guys use it. I should say a lot of shooters, not just guys. Uh, the, uh, the Venom is going to have a little bit better feature set. Uh, it does have a zero-stop mechanism, which is really beneficial if you're running your turrets a lot, being able to come back down to a, a zero. Uh, you Actually, the zero-stop mechanism even allows you to dial five-tenths below zero. Um, it's a 5 to 25 by 56. First focal plane, it has the EBR-7C reticle, which is the same reticle as in the Gen 2 Razor. It actually has a lot of the same feel and function of a Gen 2 Razor. Obviously not quite the quality level, um, but it, it has a lot of the same feature set. Now, if I'm wrong about that one and we go down to Diamondback Tactical, uh, that also is a first focal plane, the Diamondback Tactical first focal plane. It's available in a 4 to 16 by 44 and a 6 to 24 by 50. Uh, that also has the, um, actually that's got the EBR, uh, EBR-2B in it. Um, ooh, shoot, I forget. I had been a while since I used that one. I'm used to shooting my uh, my new Gen 3 636. <laughs> we'll post we'll post a link to all these yeah. scopes in the in the description. So if you guys need reference that. Yeah, but that one does also have the parallax, which comes down to I think 15 yards on that one. Um, you don't have the locking turrets, but you do have the exposed windage and elevation. Um, the first focal plane, which is huge for this game, where adjusting our magnification all the time, not having to do equations to figure out what your data actually is on your scope. Uh, exceedingly useful. That's probably where I, where I would be. Between those two, if I'm wrong, again, I'm a Venom, sorry. Not a price point guy, more of a, more of a technical guy. Right. Well, but, we'll clarify that in the description as well about the MSRP, so I'll just list those with a, with a link to them so you guys yeah. can see. But I would on that point... I actually recommend when people are starting out not to worry as much about staying in base class to compete in base class and more about, you know, getting the most for the money that you do have to invest because the optic is the first thing I recommend people to upgrade when they're ready to jump into open class. So if you happen to just start an open class because you can afford a little bit better glass, I highly recommend it. So with the step from the Diamondback to the Venom, um, you're you're getting a zero stop. What other things are you getting for the additional money that, that the Venom one? Uh, you're, you are getting better uh, optical quality, definitely. The other thing you're getting is a 34 millimeter tube, so a lot higher range of travel, which yes. is big, especially when we start getting these longer ranges yeah. like this match. Well, and I noticed too, when I moved from a 30 millimeter to a 34 millimeter, the field of view yeah. is, is larger too. Um, and I don't know if this is true of those scopes as well, but my eye box got a little bit more forgiving so too. The, there, there's a lot of different factors a lot of, unfortunately there's there's not a uh, there's not a there's not a list of like qualifying features that will directly determine eye box and field of view it, it 
when I talk with the optical engineers, a lot of times they're like, well, it depends. Optical design is the answer. And from one optic to the next, you know, we often talk about, and this is unfortunately a little bit of a tangent, but we, we talk about light transmission very often, and a lot of people think that immediately equates to objective size. Well, kinda, it's a factor. It's one of many factors. But I could take, let's say, if you look at our line of a rifle scopes, so go down to the Crossfire 2, which is our basis, most base class, and then go all the way up to the Razor HD Gen 3. You could take a Razor HD Gen 3, one to six, with a 24 millimeter objective, and compare it to a Crossfire 2 with a 56 millimeter objective, I guarantee that one to six Razor is gonna transmit light better, even with the smaller objective. But it's overall optical design that will determine that. Glass quality obviously is an important factor, so there's a lot of it depends factors <laughs> when it comes to optics. For sure, so what I'm learning here is get get to a match and look through some scopes to know what, oh, what yeah. you like best and what works for you best. So that's that's what I'm hearing. Yeah, if you if you have a chance to go to a match, definitely do that. Ask ask the competitors nicely. You might have to take a look through your scope. Uh, there's a lot of uh, really good dealers that we have. Um, a lot a lot of good a lot of good folks fly the Vortex flag. That if you go to their store, you can check out one one caveat to that. I'd say is that make sure it's a place that you either can have access to outside or with big windows that you can look outside because. If you're just looking at the corner of a dimly lit store, you're just not going to get the, the right feedback to make a decision. Right, that makes sense. Too. I know um, we have a few loaners that we bring to matches, so it's always worth you know pinging a match director too. If you don't have a setup yet or you're not sure what you want to spend your money on yet, get out to a couple matches, reach out in advance and see if there's a loaner set up for you to try, and then you can see kind of what, what you like and what you don't like before you invest the money, which is what I recommend to most people who are just starting out is, you know, try and see if you can get to a match and try someone's rifle or borrow a loaner rifle or something to that effect. And you'll, you'll get to hear from people who've got the experience uh, before you have to spend the money, which is huge. For sure. Well, that's all the questions that we have today. So Nick, what do you have for final thoughts? I think I say this on every podcast I do that has anything to do with competition is if you are listening to this and you don't already shoot competition, don't wait until you think you're ready because you'll never think you're ready. Just go. Even if you don't have a gun yet, go and watch. Offer to help. You might even be too nervous to RO. Ask the master director, hey, do you need help setting up something or... The answer to that question is always yes. Yes, <laughs> yes. The answer is always going to be yes. Everybody wants free help, and that's great, I think. One of the things that we always look over is is just how much work it goes into putting together a quality match. And uh, you know, make sure you're thanking your match directors for one. But also, when it, when it comes to dis- determining whether or not it's time for me to go to a match, the answer is always yes. Just go. Get one under the belt. Um, if you're not shooting, again, go help. If you want to shoot and you're ready to do that, even if you don't think you are, just go take the take what you have. I, I shot a match um, with oh, it was a WPRC match back. Uh, it was a couple years ago, and I was shooting with actually Francis Cologne, who's actually here uh, with Applied Ballistics. And there was a gentleman who came to that mass match who had a rifle that wasn't perfect for the game. 
Uh, he had a scope that was far from ideal, didn't track, and it was like one of the $60 things he bought on Amazon, thought it was right for the game, it wasn't. And uh, Francis ended up basically setting aside his rifle and just helping out this guy for the day. You're going to run into people like that all the time. Somebody who's willing to help you because it's more important to get noob shooters into the game than it is for them to actually compete in that match. Well, I feel like I can't top that. <laughs> no, that was that was really uh, really good and important. I still feel like I'm not ready for most matches I show up to, so definitely don't hold back for that reason. Um, it's it's a lot of fun. You guys will, will love it. It's a great. I'm really excited that Bob's starting um, with his son. I've seen so many father sons and father daughter and mother child situations at these matches, and it's just such a fun bonding experience for them. It's so cool to see and, and really fun to be a part of. Um, so with that, I'll just leave you guys with uh, my final thoughts and closing line that I've committed myself to, um, fortunately or unfortunately for you all, which is uh, keep sharing the love. <laughs>